Yeah, this is the next to last week in this series, which means we only have to see that mustache picture of Ron and his kids one more time. <laughs> Just, they're staring at me, I can tell. You know, I, I may be the professor, and that's okay with me, but uh, today the professor has to preach to a crowd that is going through caffeine withdrawal. And I'm kind of dreading that, you know, people start to shake right in the middle of the sermon. I guess, I guess I'll understand why. Uh, good to have you all with us today. My name is Mike and I get to open God's word today. And what you'll see in a minute is a pretty challenging passage. So we got the double whammy of caffeine withdrawal and a hard passage to preach. So you, you be praying for me, will you? Uh, you know, my wife, who I mentioned last week, my wife and I look at the world through very different lenses. That won't surprise anybody who's married. And I mentioned last week that although my wife is a shopper, I am a buyer. Uh, I buy, I just go and I buy and I come home. My wife is an organized shopper to the point where way before anyone ever, I don't think anyone else ever thought of doing this, she constructed a shopping list and put the items in the order that they would appear as she went through the aisles of the store. Now, I thought that was really unusual. Last service, I found out a lot of people do that. Who does that here? Are you kidding me? I had no clue my wife was that. People are pointing at each other. I had no clue my wife was that... Normal. That, no, don't tell her I said that. That sounds awful. I got enough trouble last week with her. <laughs> no, I mean, I called it the mega list because I, I would just make a list on a piece of paper and go off and buy the stuff and, and, and come home. But she had it all organized and structured. I found out that stores provide that. Is that true? You can get, I guess, online. That's amazing. Anyway, my wife was a woman ahead of her time. You know, I, I mentioned her mega list because the passage we're going to look at today will remind us of a shopping list. As we work through Romans 12, our theme, of course, is this is us because we believe Romans 12 describes us as Heights Church, or at least it describes the people we yearn to be, the people we aspire to be. We want to say, yeah, look at Romans 12 if you want to see what our church is like. That would be a powerful thing to be able to say, isn't it? So Romans 12, this is us, that's our theme. And today it's kind of a different kind of passage because it's made up of what appear to be pretty random commands. Do this, do that, do the other thing. But it really is, if it is a shopping list, it is God's shopping list, which tells us every item matters. He wouldn't mention it if it didn't matter. And because it's what God wants us to do, he wants these, these things to fill our lives, he's going to help it happen. So even though as you read it, you might be a little shell-shocked and a little stunned at how many different commands are there, it's worth digging into this because we're not shopping alone. The Holy Spirit is shopping with us. And I found myself wondering, as I looked at the passage this week, what would life be like if we bought every one of the items on this list today we're about to look at? How would life be different? How would our lives change, our personal lives change, if every one of the things we're about to read were true of us? How would our ability to influence other people be different? How would the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ across the country, if every Christian embraced this list and the Holy Spirit brought it out in our hearts, how many more people might we be able to influence because of the kind of people we would be? Friends, it's true that the start of the week last Monday, I was kind of dreading trying to preach this passage. Because I was, I was scratching my head saying, how do I make this cohesive? I, I, it was really like a list of ingredients, and that's what it's going to feel like in a minute. No one gets excited about the list of ingredients of a cake, right? Hey, three cups of flour, woo-hoo, I, 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 butter and, and salt and eggs. Nobody reads the list of ingredients and gets all excited. You show me the cake, and I'm excited, right? I, I, I chocolate cake, you put it on my plate. The ingredients are necessary, even if they're not very exciting, 
And so what I want us to do is see this list today as a list of ingredients. And when I embrace the question, what if? What if each of these was in my life? What if each of these was in your life? What would our lives be like? Let me read through this passage. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. We're starting at verse 9. We're going through verse 15, actually. Here's, here's the list of ingredients. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Lord, would you help us to see your word for us in this passage? Would you speak through your spirit and through your word and change hearts that are open to you? Lord, we ask you to speak because your servants are listening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin at verse 9, although for today's purposes, I'm going to call it aisle 9 to keep our shopping list thing going here. What do we find in aisle 9? Well, it says, first it says, love must be sincere. Don't just look at this phrase, though, because I hope you've learned over the years to look at a verse of the Bible in its context, meaning what precedes it and what follows it. If you were here last week, you heard Ron preach up through verse 8, right before this verse. And the end of that passage was all about the gifts that God gives to his people through the Holy Spirit so we can serve him. Gifts are supernatural abilities to do something we couldn't do before we knew Jesus. And as we cultivate those gifts and put them into practice, God works through us to bless other people. It's an amazing thing. And, and, and gifts are important. But it's very easy for us to get so focused on those abilities and sometimes, in fact, a little pumped up about how good we are because we can do these things, that we lose track of the most important thing, which is, guess what? Love. So right after verse 8, where he finishes that list in verse 9, he jumps right into love. And that might make you remember another passage, if you're familiar with the New Testament. In fact, the passage of the Bible, the entire New Testament that speaks in the most detail about these spiritual gifts and how to use them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, another letter Paul wrote to a different church, this one in Greece. And in these chapters, he said, here's these gifts, here's how to use them, here's how not to use them. And right smack in the middle, he plops in this famous chapter 13, which is all about what? Love. Maybe the most famous and most well-known, most often quoted chapter in the entire Bible. And Paul to the Corinthians is saying, yeah, gifts matter. They're important. Use them this way. Don't use them that way, but don't forget to love. And so it's no surprise that to the Romans, he said something similar. Here's the, here's the list of the gifts, but hey, love must be sincere. I want us to hear that description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. I could read it, but I found online this week a, a, a video of it where the guy reads it with a British accent, and that matters a lot to me. Okay, I can listen all day. I can listen to a British guy reading the phone book. I don't care. So I, so, and it's got harp music in it, which I really love. So I want us to sit back and listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8.
Isn't that beautiful? Maybe some of the, yeah, you can applaud love. I won't stop you from applauding love. That's a good thing. Maybe the most beautiful poetry in all of the Bible, maybe the most uh, profound words in all of the Bible. And when we talk about love, that's what we're talking about. And to go back to the verse again, it says, love must be sincere. Not just any kind of a fake love, not just any kind of a phony love. It has to be sincere, he says. And that word sincere contains some very important ideas embedded in it, if you, if you know the original language. The Greek word there, and the New Testament was written in Greek, you might know, uh, contains the word hypocrite. It says, don't be a hypocrite as you love people. And the word hypocrite actually is in a very interesting word. It refers to people who speak behind a mask. It's actually the word for actor. The Greek actors back in the day, in order to show what role they were playing, they didn't have a whole bunch of, of dramatic stage scenery and everything else. They had masks that they held up to their face. And an actor was one who spoke behind a mask. And so this verse says, when we love and we must, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be an actor. Don't be reciting lines that don't really come from your heart. Don't be pretending to be someone you're not and say things you don't truly believe. So this passage says, love must be sincere, must be authentic. And so to go to our what ifs, what if we loved each other sincerely from the heart with actions and not just words? You know, aisle nine also contains another ingredient. It says this, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Look at that again. Hate what is evil. Are we allowed to hate I'll say yes, not just allowed to, we have to. Hate, in fact, is the other side of love. I love my kids. I've got two girls and two grandsons and a son-in-law. I love them. I would die for them. And I hate anything that would hurt them. I love the mountains. I love trails in the mountains. My favorite trail is in Flagstaff. I, I take it several times a year. I hate the trash that people leave along the way. I love the ocean. I grew up in Southern California, I like to go to the beach, love to hike along the beach in these later years. I hate the fact that we're filling it with plastic and the pictures we see online of animals, of fish being strangled by the six-pack plastic, uh, what do you call those things, racks or whatever, that people just toss away. I hate that that's happening in an ocean that I love. In fact, I'll say this, in some ways, fervent love requires hatred. Can you love humility without hating pride? Ron talked about humility last week. Can you love children without hating the fact that some of them get caught up in sex trafficking and their childhood is ripped away from them brutally? Can you love the fact that the Bible tells us that when we get to heaven, we'll be celebrating with brothers and sisters in Christ from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that God is in the midst of building for himself a people that crosses all ethnicities and all races and all languages. And I visited over 45 countries and found believers, brothers and sisters in all of those countries. Can we celebrate that without hating racism in the way it sometimes, in an ugly way, infiltrates into the very church that Jesus Christ is intentionally making from the entire world. Can you love peace without hating war? Can you truly love righteousness without hating sin? God's been working on that in my heart a lot lately, about how much I wink too much, how much I tolerate in my own heart, in my own life, that I know things that God would hate. Now, God does hate, and I wink at it. Friends, I believe hatred matters. I believe we need to sometimes study the hatred of God. Have you heard a sermon on the hatred of God before? 
Proverbs 16.9 describes it. Six things the Lord hates, yea, seven, that are an abomination to him. God hates things, and we must as well. So my point is this. We don't hate enough, friends. And when we do, we hate the wrong things. We hate what gets in our way. We hate what hurts our feelings. We hate the people that stop our agenda. We hate the people that disagree with us in a way that bothers us. We hate the wrong things for the wrong reasons. But what if, as we go shopping in God's supermarket, what if we hated the right things for the right reasons? How would life change? That's aisle nine. What do we find on aisle 10? It says this, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. We see the first part of this ingredient is a little splash over from, from verse 9. There's that word love again, but it's more specific. It's more precise. The word love here in the original language refers to a familial kind of love. Some verses say fraternal. Some say brotherly. The word is Philadelphia. Anybody from Philadelphia here? That's the city of what? Brotherly love. That's what the word means. That's what this word means. And it says, let's be devoted to each other. Why? Because we're family. Because we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Because we have an, a common elder brother, the firstborn, Jesus Christ. And he's sharing his inheritance with us. And, and we, sh- we share that in common. That family tie gets lost in our day a little bit. In some ways, because of our vocabulary. In our subculture of Christianity, we don't use these terms very much. Others do. And I, I kind of wish we did more. I don't know. We got an email in the office this week from a man who was writing us from Nigeria, uh, from Kenya. He's a doctoral student studying theology in Kenya. He's from Nigeria. And he wrote, out of the blue, with no contact here that I'm aware of, asking if he could come to Heights for an internship this December and January. Wow. I know, it's kind of cool, but... We had to say no. I'm sorry, Charlie. <laughs> we, we don't have anything to offer him, especially what he's looking for. So I, I, I chose to write back and, and let him know, we're, although we're glad, honored to be asked. It's not something we can provide on that time frame. But because I'd spent some time in West Africa, I intentionally shifted into the language I would use were I speaking to him from that context. And I immediately used the word brother. His name was Moses. I said, thank you, Brother Moses, in the name of our Lord Jesus, for writing us with this request. In a formal language, but the word that jumped out in my heart, and I found it flowing naturally through my keyboard, was brother. Because in that subculture of Christians, that is how people talk. And there's some, maybe you've grown up in systems, or, or you know some places around the U.S. today, where people in the family of God do use that terminology more. We don't as much here. I, I kind of wish we did. If you want to call me brother after the sermon, feel free. <laughs> kind of like that. Because it'll be putting this verse into practice. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. This is, again, an outflowing of the love that we're called to have. Sincere, authentic love, which leads to actions, which leads to devotion, which leads to acts of honor above ourselves. This is a reflection of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Because of the love for each other, have this same affection so that you consider one another more important than yourself. What if, friends, we picked this ingredient off of aisle 10? What if we loved and honored each other like a loving family? Let's turn the corner on aisle 10 and, and head to aisle 11. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. This, this verse, this aisle is where we pick up enthusiasm. It's where we pick up energy. It's where we remind ourselves that, yes, it's easy to fall into a rut. 
even in, in what we do for our Lord, even in serving him in sometimes powerful and amazing ways, it can become same old, same old. It can get routine. Our, our serve team for the morning services meets at 8 o'clock every morning in the lobby to we'll pray together and start the day. And I mentioned that to them today. So no matter what you do here, if you do it week after week, there's danger. It's great because it's faithful. But the danger is, and I get up, I, I come to church, I do this thing, and I go home. And it can become boring. What a shame. I'll say further, what a sin to be bored in the midst of serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. And aisle 11 reminds us that what we're doing, when we do it for the Lord, we're doing it for the God of the universe. We're doing it for the one who created the Milky Way. We're doing it for the one who made the mountains and flagstaff and the pounding waves in California. We're doing it for the one who came and lived among us and died on the cross for us. And it's for him. And when we remind ourselves of that, then we, we can avoid the boring and the humdrum and the routine and the been there, done that. No, I get to get up every day and say, hey, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And I can address that request to the God of the universe. And I can take the gifts he's given me to make him glorious, and I can go out and serve him any way I can with whoever he brings across my path, and that's amazing. What? Don't let it get boring. Let's keep our zeal. Let's, let's keep our spiritual fervor knowing that we're serving the Lord. One of our goals is to be empowered as Christ followers, to, to find that place, that unique place that he has shaped us for. And when we do, we've got to remind ourselves, it's the Lord Christ whom we serve. And from him, Colossians says, we'll receive the reward of the inheritance. So friends, what if? What if Isle 11 gave us this? What if the fire of our passion for Jesus didn't fade? Wow, wouldn't that be cool? What if? Let's head to Isle 12 on our shopping trip now. Be joyful in hope, it says. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. At first glance, these three things seem to be a little randomly disconnected. But when you look at them closer, and I think there is reason to believe, the structure of the verse does link them together in a unique kind of way. So here's one way to look at these three commands. I, I believe they revolve around this word affliction. I, I want you to imagine that you're going through a really, really tough time. And maybe you don't have to imagine it. Maybe you came here in the middle of it. Maybe you wondered if you would come today because it's so hard. Maybe you had to drag yourself out of bed because these days that's what you have to do every morning. In the midst of whatever rough time you're having, is it financial? Is it about your health? Is it relationships? Is it your kids? Is it your parents, your siblings? I don't know. Is it a spiritual crisis of some kind? I don't know what, your, what the Bible calls affliction. No way I can know. And chances are the people you're sitting next to don't know at all. That's okay. We get that. But if that's the context in which you've come today to this place to worship the Lord and hear from him, then maybe you can look at these three verses this way. That because you know who you're singing to today, even in the midst of your wrecked heart, in the midst of the pain, and in some ways the words might be hard to, to pronounce, maybe because in the midst of it all, you know God is still in charge. You know God is still who he's been all along. You know that you have hope that although he's not changing it on your time frame, he's going to change it on his, that you can be joyful in that hope, even though it's caving in around you, even though the stress is huge, even though the pain is real, 
You find joy in some of the darkest places. I have. I hope you have. It can be a surprising moment. It can be a refreshing moment. All of a sudden, when you just think things can't get any darker for me, then a thought comes through or words of a song we just sang or a verse we're reading, just bam! And it, it, it shines into your world and you jump at it and you cling to it because, wow, there's joy all of a sudden and you didn't expect it. And because you know that this thing is going to last a while, that because God's not changing it on your time frame, and you wish you would, it's going to call for some patience. It's going to call for you needing to gut it out, needing to push through whatever other cliches you want to toss at the problem. Yeah, if you wish it would change yesterday, and it's not. So you're going to say, Lord, I choose to be patient in the midst of all this. And because you can't change your health by yourself and you can't make your loved one turn around and talk to you for the first time in months or years, because you can't do anything about getting the job if people keep closing the door, okay, the door keeps closing, but the only thing you can do is pray. And you choose to be faithful in that. So in the midst of the problem, the affliction, you find a way to be joyful because you do have hope. You find a way to be patient because you know God's in charge. And if all you can do is pray, that's where you're going to be faithful. Do you see how this can work together? And so, friends, I, I, here on aisle 12, here's what our what if. What if we embraced hard times as opportunities for growth? Instead of assuming they're going to derail us, instead of assuming, okay, man, if this lasts much longer, I, I, I'm going I'm to be a wreck. What if we said, wait a minute, God's in here somewhere. I'm going to go hunting for him. And in the midst of it, I want to grow. God didn't allow this for nothing. You can look back to the past and see ways you've grown in the midst of pain, I hope. I can in my life. So what if we embrace these hard times as opportunities for growth? That's our ingredient from aisle 12. Now move on to aisle 13. What do we have here? Share with the Lord's people, it says, who are in need. And then it says practice hospitality. What's, what's this ingredient all about? Well, the Bible makes it clear that God wants his people to be generous because he's generous. He wants us as Christ's followers to be like Jesus who gave and gave and gave and gave, right? And so he doesn't, doesn't just call us to it. He gives us the ability to do it, whether we have a lot or a little, to say, I'm going to share. My stuff isn't my stuff. My stuff is given to me to be passed on to somebody else. You know, the early church in the book of Acts got it. They got it powerfully to the point where on that day when the, the church of Jesus Christ was actually born, it's the first day the Holy Spirit actually came and lived in the people who loved Jesus. As he began to transform their hearts, they realized, hey, there's a lot of people who don't have what I have. And in the past, I might have said, oh, too bad. Oh, well. But that wasn't enough for these folks. And Acts chapter 3 says they went out and sold what they had and brought it and laid it at the feet of the leaders of the church so they could distribute it to people who needed it. Man, that's generosity. And I've seen acts like that, maybe not to the same degree, but some of you have acted in that way. You've made significant, generous gifts, made them available to some of us in the church who know where the needs are so that their needs could be matched with your resources. It's still happening today. What if we all... Recognize that whatever I have, little or much, 
It's meant by God to be passed on, not to be hoarded. It's not just for me because it's not just about me. It's about the others. And a more precise way to do that is to practice hospitality, it says. That's a specific generosity with your home. We all know what hospitality means. It's saying, you know, my home is your home if there's a need. And I'm able to meet it. I'm eager to do so. My wife has, since I've known her, been amazing at hospitality. She's a great shopper and she's great <laughs> at hospitality. This has been a gift of hers for a long time. And I've, I've admired it. Uh, I, I wish I was better at it like she is at times. And, and in the last year or so, we've gotten very intentional about hospitality. In fact, because the Lord gave us means to do it, we bought a house that would be more hospitable than the one we had. And we've intentionally set about making it available to people in a specific kind of ministry. Uh, we, we have people leaving this morning who are staying with us for four days. We've got folks arriving this afternoon to stay with us for three. Uh, and, and there's more down the road. This is a, a new ministry we've started because we think God wants us to encourage missionaries. We, we think he wants us to share our home with those folks. Now, you might not be called to that kind of hospitality, but what kind might you be called to? What if we all, instead of seeing our home as a fortress with a, a chain gate, what if we saw it as a meadow? What if we said, hey, I want to invite you to my place. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's sit and chat. Let's get to know each other. Whatever resource he's given you in terms of your home, what if you committed to this ingredient and said, Lord, what I have is yours and what I have is theirs. Would you show me how to do that wisely? Show me how to do that carefully? But show me how to do that in a way that brings you honor and builds up your people because that's what I'm here for. So, Isle 13's what if is this. What if we saw our possessions as blessings waiting to be shared? What if we recognized they were given for us to pass through us so that other people could say, wow, thank you, I really needed that. What if that characterized Christians around the world? What if that was the first thing that came to people's minds when they thought about Christ followers? Oh man, you guys are so generous. What if? Now I'll... 14, we're going to skip because that has an ingredient that John's going to talk about next week as the rest of the chapter comes back to that. So I'll just say this about aisle 14. Clean up on aisle 14. <laughs> Always wanted to say that into a microphone. That's great. I, I enjoyed that. So our last aisle is aisle 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That's the last ingredient we'll look at today. Rejoice with those who rejoice. There's something about that that often comes naturally, not always, but often. It, it, it can be natural to say, I've got great news, I want to share it with you, and if you hear it, the other person, oh yeah, that's wonderful. There's all kinds of news like that in our day, uh, and social media tends to be the way most of those things get shared. I think I had three friends get engaged this week on Facebook, and you're not engaged until it's on Facebook, you realize that. <laughs> And so there were the pictures and the pointing to the ring and, and whatever they did to make the event happen. And nothing gets as many comments and likes as uh, an engagement announcement. Everybody, hey, that's great news. Maybe the only thing that gets close is pregnancy announcements. And everyone looks for the really cute way to announce that they're expecting a baby. And everybody, there's as many different ways to do it as there are pregnancies. And that also gets a huge response because something in us is wired, I hope, to say your good news is my good news. That doesn't always happen. There are settings, competitive settings, 
Maybe you're in a work setting where something good to you is, means something bad for somebody else. Maybe you're in a family setting where, where there's a favorite and a preferred one and, and, and that one gets, gets stuff and everyone else kind of gets resentful. Th- those are sad and, and, and when that happens, boy, it's, it's tragic. If it ever happens among believers, it's really bad because we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice. So yes, your good news should be my good news and vice versa. And it won't be any surprise that the other side of that coin is just as true. Mourn with those who mourn. Your pain is my pain. Your stress is my stress. I will bear your burden, as Galatians 6 calls us to do. There's all kinds of ways to mourn with those who mourn. Sometimes it's literal. Sometimes it's sitting next to someone who's crying and you're crying with them. Sometimes that's, that's all that's needed, although that's a, wow, that's the deep end of the pool on mourning with those who mourn. Sometimes it's a little more practical, structural, whatever you want to call it. I I want you to know here at Heights we have what's called our funeral care team, whose goal is very much this, to mourn with those who mourn. It involves at least six of our staff members, and we're eager to come alongside people who've lost loved ones. Obviously here uh, among our family at Heights, that's an automatic must. Every church does that, I sure hope. But we're also eager on our funeral care team to invite folks who have never been to Heights. And, and, and lost a loved one and don't know where to start, don't have a church, what do we do? We're thrilled when those people come our way or are sent our way by some of our hospice partners because we're eager to, to jump into their life. We're eager to show them your pain matters to us. We're eager to provide this service, which by the way, we tell them early in the process, we say something like this, because we know how much financial stress is part of losing a loved one, how much end-of-life medical bills can be overwhelming and the funeral costs can be staggering, we would like you, please, allow us to do this for you for free. That includes our facility, the pastor's time, the tech time, the, everybody who's involved is eager to do this as a gift. Will you please accept this from us? We've had people break down in tears at that point because it gets this message across. Your pain matters to it. We're not here to make money off of you. We're not here to profit from your hurt. We're here because we love you and Jesus does too and we'd like to represent him in your life right now. Amen. Now there's other ways to do that. Uh, you don't have to be part of a team that does it. You've got a loved one, you've got, you got somebody you, you, you care about, a friend who loses. Uh, sometimes because we don't want to say the wrong thing and make them cry and make them feel bad as if we could make them feel bad when they've lost their mother. Okay? <laughs> they already feel bad. Because we don't want to be the one who says the stupid stuff, we back away, right, Charlie? Charlie and Catherine run our grief share ministry. And that's sadly common. Don't be that person. Be the one who dares to step toward them, to step into their life, to say, I don't know how to do this, but I want to bear it with you. Will you let me? A simple question like that can come across as the fulfillment of this command to mourn with those who mourn. There's a Swedish proverb I'm going to call it Swedish because that's what I learned online this week. I've heard it in lots of places, but they say it's Swedish. So I'll give the Swedes some credit. Here it is. Shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. So when the news goes out, I'm engaged, we're pregnant, uh, I got the promotion, I got a job, whatever. Hey, that's great. That doubles the joy. And when the pain goes out, the tests were positive. Mom passed away. My kid ran away, and that matters, and that hurts, and we bear that sorrow by sharing it. It can be lightened. I'm not sure half is the right word, but it's lightened. 
as someone else steps in and carries it. What if, friends, what if we were these people? What if we were known for our compassion? What would our world be like? What would our lives be like? Now, we stop our shopping list there, but there's been a lot. And I want to throw a list up on the screen of all of the what ifs I've thrown out at you this morning. And it's going to be a little daunting. And if you try to tackle it all at once, I guarantee you're going to get frustrated. So I don't want you to do that. I want you to pick one. Now, I'm not saying pick one forever and ignore the other six forever. No, sooner or later, we've got to get around to all of these ingredients. They're all part of the cake Jesus is baking in your life, right? And you've got to have them all. But for today, for this week, maybe there's one the Holy Spirit is tugging on you about. What if we loved sincerely with actions from the heart? What if we hated the right things for the right reason? What if we loved and honored each other like family? What if the fire of our passion for Jesus didn't fade? What if we embraced hard times as opportunities for growth? What if we saw our possessions as blessings waiting to be shared? What if we were known for our compassion? On some ways, we have an answer to those questions. Because when you look at that list, it pretty much describes Jesus, right? What if we were like Jesus? What if we reflected him as we walked around this world that he loves, that he made? And what if today the Holy Spirit whispered to your heart, here's yours. Here's the one I want to work in your heart on this week. Maybe he's done that. If he has, I want you to tell him you've heard him. If he hasn't, I want you to ask him, which of these should I focus on this week as, Lord, you shape all of them in me sooner or later? Let's bow our heads. Take a few seconds of silent prayer. Ask that of the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us the importance of all of these things and the power of a life that contains them all. Lord, we don't pretend to have them all down. We don't pretend to have it all together, but we want to be these people. That can only happen through your work, Holy Spirit, changing us from the inside out. So show us which of these matters most to us right now. Which of these do you want to form in us more than others? Which of these should be the focus of our prayer life this week and about which of these should we be sensitive as you give us opportunities to act them out. Lord, we want this to be us. We pray that you would make it happen, and when you do, we ask you to remind us that it's you who did it and not us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.